This evening I'm going to talk about confusion and I must first confess that I am very confused about confusion. And confusion, again, or delusion, as it's sometimes translated, um, is often uh, mentioned. I've been mentioning it in the talk I gave the other night, for example. It abounds everywhere in Buddhism. Uh, ignorance is another variant of it. Ignorance, confusion, delusion. But what does that mean? And particularly, what does it mean in terms of our actual experience of ourselves, our actual experience on this retreat, when we're sitting here? What does it mean to be confused? Now, I mentioned in the last talk that the way the nirvana is very often uh, defined in the early uh, Buddhist texts is as the, the ending or the absence of greed, of hatred, and confusion. These are called the three fires. It's probably an idea or a triad of ideas that goes back probably to a very early period in what is supposed to be the Buddha's third discourse, he says that the world is burning. Burning with what? Burning with greed, burning with hatred, and burning with confusion. So clearly this is a very, very central idea. But it somehow sits uncomfortably, I found, within that uh, set. Greed, I don't have any difficulty knowing what that's about. Hatred, fear, anger. Again, I'm utterly familiar with what those emotions feel like. And confusion. Um, why does that somehow sit in the middle here between greed and hatred? In what way can we understand it as comparable, as being of the same kind of uh, stuff, psychic stuff, as greed and hatred? It's not so obvious. In the instruction yesterday, um, we talked about collectedness, what usually is translated as concentration. And the way that it is um, understood is as arising from a frame of mind that is um, no longer caught up in the reactive patterns of the hindrances. In other words, again, desire and hatred, they're both mentioned, or aversion here. Restlessness, torpor, and vacillation or doubt. So what's the difference then between nirvana, which is understood as the freedom from the reactivity of greed and hatred and confusion, and collectedness, 
samadhi, which is well, which arises from uh, no longer being caught up in attraction, aversion, restlessness, torpor, and vacillation. Well, the element that uh, differentiates them is confusion. Now, confusion is not presented as one of the hindrances, whereas atta attachment and aversion are. So what seems to differentiate the experience of, 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 of collectedness from the experience of nirvana, both of which are non-reactive states of being in the world, is that nirvana is also an experience in which confusion is no longer driving our thoughts, our experience, our behavior. That's the crucial distinction between a mind that is still calm, collected, focused, embodied, and a mind that is achieved a freedom which is in many ways the freedom that lies at the heart of Buddhist experience, that is also a freedom from confusion. The word for confusion in Pali is moha, and it um, suggests a kind of darkness of the mind, a fogginess, um, an inability to see clearly what's going on. If you are familiar with the Tibetan Wheel of Life, which represents on its outer rim the, um, the 12 links of conditioned arising, the first one, ignorance, depicts an old person, uh, a blind old person, uh, trying to find their way around with a stick. So it's, it's, it's associated with the idea of blindness. Um, in German, when they translate moha, very often they use the word verblendung, which is associated with this idea of blind, blindness. We can't see what's going on. I rather like that translation, verblendung a kind of an inner blindness, an inability to see what's happening. So far, that seems quite clear. But what is it that we are confused about? What is it that we are blind, blinded to? And I think this goes very much to the heart of what we will then understand as um, being awake or being enlightened. Um, this again is, as you're aware, one of the utterly key ideas in uh, the Buddha's teaching. Uh, the Buddha is regarded as one who has woken up, woken up as it were from a kind of a sleep, either a deep sleep or a dream, and suddenly finds himself seeing things more clearly being able to make sense of what's going on. So again, this confusion, delusion, ignorance is what's actually the primary 
obstacle or hindrance to being, to being really awake. The question that I struggle with a bit is, is this confusion or ignorance about our failure to uh, understand the nature of reality? Are we blind to who we really are? Are we uh, deluded about the nature of the self? Are we deluded about the nature of things? Or are we confused and deluded about how to live, about what to do? And this captures a distinction that I find very helpful. The distinction between what the American philosopher John Dewey called knowing that and knowing how. So two different kinds of knowing. We know things, we know, we, let's say we gain knowledge and understanding and information about how things are, what they are, who they are. That's one kind of knowing. But another kind of knowing is the knowing not so much of what is the nature of things or reality, but the knowing of how to live, of what to do, which is really something more to do with ethics. And I wonder here whether we might fruitfully consider confusion or delusion, not so much in terms of, of failing to know the nature of reality or truth, but rather the failure to know how to live well, how to live skillfully, how to live um, compassionately. Two different kinds of knowing. And what often has struck me in the um, early Buddhist discourses is the Buddha is actually very interested in, um, in uh, how to do things, or what we might today call know-how, savoir-faire. And many of the examples he uses to illustrate his practices, illustrate how to live, are drawn from his observations of the work of artisans. And so we find, for example, the Buddha comparing the practitioner or the wise person to a farmer who knows how to irrigate his fields. Or a fletcher, someone who makes arrows, knowing how to make an arrow or a carpenter who knows how to fashion or shape a piece of wood. Now, if that's the example he gives of the, the pandita, the wise person, then he seems to be emphasizing not that these people have some insight into reality, but they're good at performing certain skills and tasks. They know how to irrigate a field, which, of course, is integral to being able to plant um, 
a crop and then being able for that crop to ripen and to be harvested. They know how to put together the different elements of the arrow so that the arrow will be an optimal kind of arrow. They know how to shape and carve a piece of wood in order that they can transform that wood into something that has value or utility. There's another example that, uh, again, I find very, uh, very telling in this regard. He says that you should, um, uh, you should develop concentration, uh, exertion or effort, and equanimity, this is the cultivation of certain skills, in the same way as, quote, a goldsmith would prepare a furnace, heat up a crucible, take some gold with his tongs, and put it into the crucible. And from time to time, the goldsmith would blow on the fire. At other times, he would sprinkle water over it. And from time to time, he would just look on as to what's happening. Clearly, the Buddha, or whoever said this, had carefully attended to the skill of the goldsmith. He kind of knew how goldsmiths worked and what they did, and that became a metaphor for how to practice, like a skilled artisan. So again, once again, it's not, it's know-how that matters rather than knowing that, knowing some thing about the nature of truth. And even in the, the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the foundation of mindfulness, he compares the, the person who's observing their breath, being mindful of their breathing, he says such a person is like a, a skilled wood turner who when making a long turn with his lathe or his tools knows that, oh, I'm making a long turn. And when he makes a short turn, he knows that he's making a short turn. So again, even the practice of awareness of the breath is compared to the skill of a craftsman. In other words, it's, I mean, I like this example because it suggests very much that the, this practice of mindfulness is not something purely internal to oneself, but it is actually a, an engagement or a way of working with the materials of life itself. And it's also somehow transformative in the same way that the wood turner transforms the piece of wood through working upon it. But these are unlikely, if ever, to be used as examples of um, wisdom or the opposite of confusion. Traditionally, uh, as I've been taught in, in the traditions I've studied, confusion, delusion, ignorance tends to be presented as a failure to recognize that things are impermanent, that things are dukkha, or suffering, unsatisfactory, however we translate that, the failure to know that things are without self. Um, and then in some of the 
traditions, the failure to know that things are intrinsically empty of, of self or self-existence, or a failure to understand the true nature of mind. In other words, these examples are all uh, very much coming from what Dewey calls knowing that. In other words, by knowing um, the nature of things, that is what grants you illumination or insight or liberation. Um, and that has become, I feel, the sort of normative way in which ignorance and delusion and confusion are presented. We do, however, um, have uh, passages which talk of um, ignorance or confusion being primarily about our failure to understand the Four Noble Truths. Now, if we think of the Four Noble Truths in the language we're using on this retreat as a series of tasks, then this might suggest that actually confusion is not so much about failing to know that life is suffering, that the origin of suffering is craving, and so on, but it's a failure to know how to perform certain tasks. We're confused about what it means to fully embrace dukkha, how to do it, how to practice that. It's a failure to know how to let go of, of reactivity or craving. It's a failure to know how to um, behold or to experience directly the stopping of reactivity. It's a failure to know how to cultivate a way of life, how to develop the Eightfold Path. So if we put this into, into somewhat more abstract language, knowing that is basically a question of ontology. In other words, the attempt to know what things and what things are. Whereas the question as to what to do and how to live are once again questions of ethics. So is confusion an ontological confusion or is it an ethical confusion? Confusion about what is as opposed to confusion about what to do. Now, coming back to what I, I said at the beginning, if I, if, I, if I think of this in terms of my actual experience when I'm sitting on a cushion, paying attention, trying to still and quiet my mind to become more collected, more attentive and aware, I find myself beset with desires. I find myself beset with aversions or worries. I don't find myself beset with thoughts that are saying, gosh, everything is permanent. Uh, I, I exist inherently, yay. Uh, I, I'm not instinctively or naturally overwhelmed by thoughts about ontology, about what things are, who I am. That seems to be a kind of second order consideration. It's interesting, and I think Buddhism does, in fact, have a lot to say about these things. 
And I'm not suggesting for a moment that it's not useful to notice the changing, tragic, impersonal nature of experience. I think that's very important. But I'm not sure that that's really uh, sufficient to explain what it really means to be confused. Um, what I worry about, what, what, what I'm confused about in meditation are things like, uh, you know, how do I deal with my anxiety that's coming up right now? Uh, how do I cope with this, uh, this, the, the, this experience I have of always dropping off to sleep? Or how do I get rid of this worry that won't go away? How, how do I deal with this stuff? What do I do? That's what's really going on in my, in my, in my actual experience. How do I deal with the difficulties in my relationships, at work, difficult decisions I have to take? They're the things where I feel as though I'm in the dark, as it were. That's when I experience that inner darkness, that inability to really figure out how to live, really. And one can also imagine a state um, in which one is perfectly aware of the impermanence of things, the dukkha of life, the impersonality, the emptiness. One could imagine being totally clear about those things and yet still being completely confused as to what to do. In other words, do these insights really make a difference to my ethical life to my relationships with myself, with others, with the world. Is it much use, in fact, to have this, to know about impermanence and emptiness and so on? How is that going to actually make a difference in how I live? I don't think it follows um, naturally that if I know those things, then I'll somehow have worked out my difficulties in making choices. They seem to be incommensurable. They don't seem to fit together. Again, in, if we use the jargon of modern philosophy, um, one of the well-known phrases is, you cannot derive ought from is. In other words, just because you know what something is, that doesn't mean that you then know what you should do. This is often uh, said in regard to scientific knowledge. Science can tell us how things, you know, what, what they are, how they work and so on, but science is not in the business of then saying, therefore you should live like this. That's ethics. I would suggest, although nowadays it's quite fashionable to think of Buddhism as a science of the mind, I feel that its real contribution to human beings is... Um, is, is, is the art of living, of knowing how to live well, knowing what to do, or at least finding a way of being in the world in which that ethical intelligence is increasingly refined through practice. Now, the, I think there are hints of this um, in the suttas, although... I think, it, uh, I think I must be honest here. I don't think this is the dominant 
way in which uh, moha is explained in the suttas. But we've ha we have a dialogue between Gautama and a Brahmin who's called Jangusoni. And Jangusoni has also gone to the Buddha and asked him, what do you mean to say that... Um, oh, no, actually, sorry. Jangusoni has gone to the Buddha and asked him about the nature of nirvana. Because he's heard that nirvana also is clearly visible, immediate, inviting, uplifting, to be personally experienced by the wise. Remember, in the last talk, we had this figure, Sivaka, who goes to the Buddha and says, what do you mean to say the Dharma is clearly visible, immediate, and so on? And there, too, we found that what the Buddha was meaning by the Dharma was the absence of greed, the absence of hatred, and the absence of confusion, which is, of course, nirvana. So here, Jangusuni actually spells it out and says, okay, what is this? Why is it that nirvana is clearly visible and so on? And I'm not going to go through the whole passage, but the key point is that uh, in answering Jangusuni, uh, the Buddha says that a person who, who clearly sees nirvana, for whom nirvana is immediate and inviting and uplifting, such a person neither plans for his own harm, nor for the harm of others, nor for the harm of both. In this way, Brahmin, nirvana is clearly visible, inviting, uplifting, and so on. So nirvana here is quite clearly presented as an ethical condition. To be in this non-reactive space is not just a neutral, sort of disassociated detachment from life, in which you're just not reacting anymore, but this is an opening, a spaciousness, in which you neither plan for your own harm or the harm of others or the harm of both. In other words, it is an ethical condition. It's a condition that is concerned with what is often considered the root of Buddhist ethics, and that is the principle of non-harm or non-violence. And that resides in the very core of nirvana itself. A non-reactive mind is a non-violent mind. It's a mind that does not seek to cause harm to others, and that, I would suggest, is because it is an empathetic experience. Once uh, greed, attachment, fear, hatred are momentarily shed, we become that much more open and transparent to the suffering of others, to the suffering of the world, perhaps. I think this is also clear from the famous parable of the arrow. Again, I'm not going to go into this in great detail, but it's a well-known story. I'm sure most of you are familiar with it. A person has been shot by a poisoned arrow, lying on the ground, bleeding to death, and his friends want to bring a surgeon to treat him. But the person lying there in agony says, no, 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 I, before you, I won't let a surgeon come near me until I know the name of the man who shot the arrow, 
whether he was tall or short, whether he was fair-skinned or light-skinned, and it goes on and on and on and on, until I know whether the, uh, the feathers at the end of the arrow were from a stork or a crow or a peacock or a heron. I mean, it's absurd. But the point the Buddha's making is that no matter how much information that person acquired, in other words, how much know that, how much informational knowledge that person acquired, it would not actually make any difference at all uh, to, the, to the, um, the crisis at hand, namely that he's bleeding to death. He would die. And then he says, in the same way, uh, if someone refuses to practice the Dharma until they know whether the world is beginningless or endless, finite or infinite, whether mind and body are the same or different, whether the Tathagata exists after death or not, they would spend the rest of their lives puzzling over this stuff and they never get round to practicing the Dharma. So again, we get very clearly here that um, the Buddha's not interested in a in, in acquiring these, this kind of metaphysical knowledge, knowing how something is. But rather, he's interested in how do I get the arrow out? In other words, what he's looking for is a know-how. And in another text, this is the Sunakata Sutta, Discourse to Sunakata, he goes into extraordinary detail describing how the surgeon has to use the, uh, the, the, the probe of mindfulness, the scalpel of wisdom, in order to uh, remove the arrowhead. And then he goes into a long story about how you must then take care of the wound, and you must dress it, and you must avoid it getting dirty, and so on and so forth. In other words, the skill of a doctor, a medical skill, which is, of course, a know-how. And it's this know-how that will enable the person to get better, to be healed, in order that he or she can then live a full life. That's the purpose of it. So again, it's not know-that, but it's know-how. Now, I would suggest that uh, this way of thinking of nirvana as a non-reactive ethical space is the very hinge on which the path or the dharma turns. In other words, in terms of these tasks, first we need to embrace the condition of life that we are in, let go of our habitual reactive uh, attachments and fears and hatreds and self-doubt and so on that spring up so automatically, come to rest in the stopping or the stilling of that reactivity, which is nirvana, and then finding the opening, the space, the possibility of thinking, speaking, acting, working, in a way that's not driven by our habitual reactive selfish behavior. So nirvana... <coughs> I'm sorry. Nirvana, therefore, is not the, the goal of the path or the end of the path or a metaphor of final transcendent liberation, but it's actually that point in our own 
heart-mind on which the path turns. Rather than reacting to the situation unthinkingly, we seek to cultivate a sensibility, an awareness, a perspective on life that we can respond to it in a non-reactive way that is premised on the principle of not causing harm. Now it's also, I think, very telling that in, in, in all of the Buddhist traditions in which I have studied, so not just the early Pali text, but also in the Tibetan tradition too, there's a doctrine which is called the three roots of virtue. And what are these three roots of virtue? Well, not surprisingly, given what I've just been building up to, it is the ardosa, arloba, armoha, the absence of greed, the absence of hatred, the absence of confusion. These are not thought of simply as literal, you know, absence of, they're not there, but these are called the, the kusalamula, the roots of good, the roots of a skillful life. So we have to be careful not to take this negative language literally or too literally. Uh, Buddhism, and again you find this in other Indian traditions too, tends to couch its understanding of the good in negative terms. So absence of greed, absence of hatred, absence of confusion doesn't just mean that these things aren't there, but it actually points to their opposites. So aloba, non-greed, is often interpreted to mean generosity or uh, contentment, or equanimity, something like that. Non-hatred um, is often understood as loving-kindness, or compassion, or tolerance. And non-confusion is understood as, uh, as, as, cl as, as clarity of mind, or intelligence, or wisdom. And again, here I'm suggesting that actually this is an, in, an ethical intelligence rather than an ontological intelligence. So I think it's striking that the three things that are absent in the experience of nirvana are also understood as the roots of virtue, the roots of what is good. I think also it's important to remember with regard to the hindrances, that the hindrances... Um, are a way of speaking metaphorically and they are drawing upon an experience that we have in everyday life, namely the experience of being hindered or blocked. And this perhaps is most um, evident when we're um, walking along a path, say, and we turn a corner and then there's a tree that's come down over the path. And suddenly we come to a halt. We've been hindered, obstructed, blocked in making any further progress. That's probably the experience that 
people would have had at the Buddha's time and our time too, but we often uh, don't think that through too clearly. Remember that so much of what the Buddha speaks of is, the language, is in the language of metaphor and parable. In other words, it's helpful to think through those concrete life situations. The farmer in the field, the arrowsmith, the goldsmith, the doctor, the wood turner. These are all metaphorical ways of describing, by appeal to a very common experience in our everyday life, with our practice that is going on in the privacy of our own minds, our own hearts. So when we're hindered or obstructed by attachment, aversion, lethargy, excitement, vacillation, um, it's not just that these things somehow um, you know, get in the way of our meditation. They actually impede the natural flow of our lives in the same way that a tree across a path prevents us from moving. And remember, of course, the metaphor of the path is very, very central in Buddhism, the Eightfold Path and so on. So the hindrances are actually what somehow stop us in our tracks and inhibit that free movement, that free flow, that in another metaphor drawn from daily life, the Buddha compares to entering a stream. The person who enters the, the Eightfold Path is said to enter a stream. The path is compared to flowing water. And the hindrances are like dams that block the flow of that water, allowing it perhaps to stagnate if we want to follow the metaphor a little bit further. So in other words, the hindrances um, are actually impediments to our living fully and spontaneously and in a fully uh, alive manner. And I think we can even say the same about this other very famous notion we find in Buddhism, uh, that of emptiness. Now it might at first glance not be so obvious the ways in which emptiness could be an ethical idea or an idea that's very intimately tied with the notion of freedom of movement. Emptiness is often compared to space. And um, for us in the West, I think that's not a helpful analogy because we have a very different conception of space compared to what they had in, in Buddhist India. For us, space means something fairly static, like the space in this room. And space is something that allows you to be able to fill it up with things or people. Space is a, is, is a static idea. In Buddhism, space is a dynamic idea. One of the definitions I learned by heart when I was a young Tibetan Buddhist monk was the definition of space. It is... Uh, <laughs> uh, something. I forget it. It's off. It slipped my mind for the moment. Anyway, it translates as the absence of resistance. The absence of resistance. The space in this room 
is what allows me to get from one side of the room to the other. In other words, nothing stands in my way. So emptiness is again an, an idea, an image of something getting out of the way. And yet it's been very usually and commonly presented as the nature of ultimate truth. That ultimately everything is absent or empty of inherent existence. And if we understand that with a direct, yogic, uh, non-conceptual insight, we then understand the way things really are. And that's emptiness. So again, that reinforces the idea that it's some sort of a metaphysical or at least some sort of profoundly important truth to understand, to know that things are empty of X, Y, Z, uh, rather than a metaphor for a know-how. But when we go back to one of the earliest uh, discourses on emptiness, this is the so-called shorter discourse on emptiness, which we find in the Pali Canon. Um, it's presented in a very different way. It doesn't mention this absence of inherent existence at all. Completely different sort of language. It starts, in fact, by presenting emptiness as a condition in which to dwell. Um, Ananda starts the discourse by saying to the Buddha, I remember once you said, for the most part, I dwell in emptiness. Viharati, which gives us the word vihara, a dwelling place. I dwell, I live in emptiness. There's nowhere suggested whatsoever that emptiness is something you need to know. You need to dwell in it. But what on earth does that mean? I'm not going to go through the whole text. We don't have time. You can look it up. It's Marjama 121. But basically, emptiness in this text means uh, experiencing life in a way that is no longer influenced by desire, becoming, and confusion, or ignorance in this case. So an empty mind is a mind that is not uh, caught up in basically reactivity. Emptiness means the emptiness of reactivity. The term here used is slightly different. It's asava. I'm not going to get into what that means, but basically it's this very similar to what we've been thinking of as reactivity. And... The Buddha, I'll just read a, the very, a few passages from the very end of the text. He says, The person who knows and sees things in this way, his heart is freed from the influences of cupidity or desire, becoming and ignorance. In this freedom, the insight dawns, this is freedom. Freedom from reactivity. And with none, of those, with none of the anxieties due to those influences or reactive patterns, I'm only prone to the amount of anxiety that comes from having the six sense fields of a living body. And this state of awareness 
is empty of those influences. And that which is not empty is this, the six sense fields of a living body. So once again, it's coming back to the body. A body which generates a level of discomfort and anxiety, but no longer am I troubled by the anxiety and the discomfort that comes from these reactive patterns of mind. So emptiness, therefore, um, started out life as an ethical frame of being in the world, a way of being in which you're no longer influenced by these reactive patterns, which allows you the freedom to pursue the path. And the path itself is actually an emptiness. It's an absence of what obstructs your movement, your progress, your development. But in the course of Buddhist history, this term slowly turned into a way of describing what is ultimately true, the nature of reality itself. So just to sum up, I feel that we can usefully think about confusion or ignorance, not so much in terms of a failure to know what the nature of reality is, or the nature of the self, or the nature of truth, but to start thinking of it as a failure to really know what to do and how to do it. And I'd like to imagine a way of presenting and practicing the Dharma in which we leave behind ontology, the concern with what is real and true, and instead embark on a vision of this practice which is ethical through and through, that it's all about how to live well, how to flourish as a person, how to flourish as a community, how to live a life in this world that's not driven by our fears, by our hatreds, by our desires, but rather by our generosity, our compassion, and our wisdom. And again, these virtues being the source of how we relate to one another, relate to ourselves, and relate to the world. Oh, I finished more or less on time. <laughs> Any questions? Yes, Ava. Can you speak up a bit? Yeah, no, um, I, no, I agree with you. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously making, I'm making a polemical point, um, which I think, personally, is long overdue. But, um, yeah, it would be, go it, there's a, I, I can see the tendency in myself to want to sweep the other side out altogether um, and just focus on, on that side. But I did, in fact, say that I did, I, I'm not suggesting, I think I'm quoting myself here now, <laughs> that um, there is no value in paying attention to impermanence and dukkha and not-self. There is. Uh, and I, but I would argue that the 
it is important to uh, notice those features of experience that we tend to block out, often because of we're invested very much in being a, in, 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 in being a, a fixed ego of some kind. We're invested very much in trying to find permanence in an impermanent world. We're invested very much in trying to uh, you know, find a life that will, uh, in a sense, just mirror back everything I want and be absent of what I don't want. And those are deeply seated uh, habits of mind that can be effectively eroded by paying attention to the fact that conditions come and go, by paying attention to the fact that life has a tragic and in, you know, an inescapably tragic dimension, in paying attention to how things are not premised exclusively on my interests, on me and mine. So yeah, that is a knowing that, if you wish. But I would, fall, I would not go so far as to say that impermanence and dukkha and anatta are, as it were, what, how reality really is. I don't, you don't need to make that additional claim. You simply need to point out that these features of experience are helpful and useful to pay attention to. Whether or not they are the nature of reality is irrelevant, completely irrelevant. But yes, it is important to pay attention to certain features of our experience, to recognize them, to notice them, and the whole of Vipassana practice in many ways is doing that. But we can do that without taking the next step of saying, this is the way things are. And unfortunately, this is a phrase you come across in the text a lot too. You see, you see and know things as they really are. You'll find that everywhere. Yattabhuttam nyangadasana. See things and know things as they really are. But the weird thing is, yattabhuttang uh, uh, doesn't mean are, is. It means to happen, to come about. It's to see how things happen, not to see how things are. And I think that once again reveals this bias, this unconscious bias to impose ontological uh, norms. Whereas in fact, that's not even there in the text. The Buddha famously says to Kachanagota, he says, for the most part, people in the world live according to the duality of it is and it is not. Primary ontological categories. Uh, but he says the one who sees things as they happen um, is not caught up in whether things are or are not. Very important passage, I would argue. So yeah, we do need to not go too far the other side. But... Um, uh, I would, you know, put a, a, a very strong emphasis on at least, you know, thinking about this and considering it as a way of approaching what we mean by confusion. Where do I go next? Elizabeth. That was following from, okay, okay, then you, you go first. Uh -huh. And to me, perhaps rephrasing the know about that, it, it's a different know 
Yeah, okay, so for those of you at the back who didn't catch that, uh, Letitia is largely following on from what Ava suggested, that we must be careful not to throw out one side of you know, this tradition and focus just on the other, but to try to find a way to reintegrate the two. And yeah, I would agree. Uh, huh? Yeah, oh, that's right, yeah. So the knowing how mm. implies the know about. Yes, that's know right. That, but it's a different know that. Yeah, and that's, that's right. And this is kind of, it's, it's a th think of it more in terms of a perception rather than a fact. Exactly. Yeah, there are rather than some hard and fast you, characteristic. You because if you work on, on gold, gold will exhibit certain... It'll certain... Yeah, that's right. You know, and mm. we, we have to respond to them. So you know about mm -hmm. what gold is. By working on it, yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay, now that, that's good. I think that the, you know, if we engage in this practice as a purely ethical practice, that will actually lead us to a better understanding of who we are, of, of what uh, is going on, in the same way that the person who works with gold or with wood, uh, by working with it, will come to understand the characteristics that it reveals. Elizabeth, you had a question. It's also part of it. Yeah. Okay, so the question is, why is there no room in the nirvanic space of non-greed, non-hatred, non-attachment for greed, hatred, and delusion? Yes, it's unethical to deny that mm -hmm. it's part yeah. of our mm -hmm. experience. Yeah, that is actually part of our experience, that these things are given in being human. So to what, in what sense, therefore, would, 
would to be resting, dwelling in this emptiness of these things, um, somehow not allow those things to be present in some way. Well, I think they are present, inevitably. And um, uh, you see, greed and hatred and delusion, if we understand them from, let's say, a biological point of view, uh, they're, you know, they, they, they are embedded in our limbic system. They're part of our evolution. They're, they're features of our humanity. Uh, we've inherited them from past generations. So they're always going to be around. And the way the Buddhism, in a way, presents this is through the figure of Mara, the demonic. And the Buddha and the Mara are always in dialogue with one another. And this, of course, is a mythical language, but experientially what it's saying is that you can't have one without the other. You can't have this Nibbanic freedom in complete independence from that which is, it is free of. So you can be totally non-reactively present to... Um, the reactions themselves. It, it's not about, it's a very important realize it's not about trying to destroy these things. It's not trying to get, you know, li literally cut them off like palm stumps, as the texts say. Uh, that, that's impossible. I mean, there may be moments when they're not there, but as long as we're in this body, as long as we are humans, we're going to be subject to these instinctual forces and drives. So it's not a question of getting rid of them. It's a question of learning how to live with them and not be tricked and overwhelmed and carried away by them. Yeah. So um, my point or question uh -huh. it follows on very nicely again because this is all so lovely and it's all great news. But, but why are there so few people ever who have been able to experience Nirvana, or maybe Nirvana is another bit that mm -hmm. we could want to cast out as being a bit of a, another trap. Well, I think the problem lies not so much... Um, I think the problem lies with the way that Nirvana has been elevated to almost impossible heights of... It's become the sort of the summum bonum, the mystical ideal of Buddhist practice. And as a result, it's achieved almost the kind of status of God in Buddhism. Nirvana, I mean, if you ask a Buddhist, have you experienced Nirvana? They would say, well, of course not. Come on, please. This is, it would be considered extraordinarily poor form to going around <laughs> saying that you experienced Nirvana. But then you have to deal with these very old texts that say Nirvana is clearly visible, immediate, so I think what happened in Buddhism is what happens in most religions, and that is over time, the core values and uh, ideas and the core figures like the Buddha or Christ get progressively elevated to impossible heights of, 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 of rarefied transcendence. And therefore we will say, why are there so few people in the world who have ever experienced this thing? The problem which is true, because it's so impossibly perfect, that, yeah, very few people, if any, maybe, actually experience these things. So the problem is not to dismiss the idea of nirvana. 
The real challenge is to bring Nirvana down to earth again, to, to, to uh, domesticate it, <laughs> to bring it back into ordinary, everyday human experience as a possibility shorter, that's... Hmm? Yes, I would say so, indeed. And to not, uh, but again, we're having to say a very small bit of it. Well, maybe not. Maybe we have a capacity as human beings to spend, you know, more and more of our life living in this responsive way. Remember the story with Sivaka the day before yesterday. He says, you know, when there is no greed or hatred or delusion within you, Sivaka, do you know that? And Sivika says, yeah, that's nirvana, yeah. It's, he already knows it. The trouble is that it's, very, it's clearly visible, but it's very hard to see. That may be more and the paradox. And hard to do. Oh, it's very hard to do. Yeah. We're going to have to stop. And <coughs> one more question if it's quick. Just following on, Stephen, in Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, exactly. Mm. It isn't a hierarchy, yeah. No, this is true, and you'll find this in other Mahayana traditions too. I think Mahayana Buddhism was in many respects a rebellion against precisely this problem of having elevated these things to such impossible heights. So you find it in Zen, you find it in, in, the, in the teachings of Nichiren, that everything comes back down to earth again. And I think something comparable needs to be done in this early tradition too. And I, I feel that these ideas of Buddhahood being here and now and everywhere are actually already in the early teachings. They need to be recovered and need to be somehow restored. And I think we can learn from these later traditions that, uh, you know, we don't have to think in this way in terms of the early Buddhist teachings. Well, I'm glad you have that, that, that hotline to the Buddha. Um, <laughs> We're going to stop here, and um, we'll start again in 10 minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.